My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Coming to you from CBC's San Francisco Bureau at One Market. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, and coach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. It's different. This market has changed. Own it. That's a huge part of the unease we've sensed every day since stocks peaked in January. We felt it today, Dow advancing 115 points, S&P dipping 0.08%, NASDAQ declining 0.2%. And believe me, intraday, these indices were all over the map, which has become the norm post the year's high. We know Wall Street's attitude toward the White House is certainly different. We got a commander-in-chief who no longer seems to have command of the stock market, in part because he's doing things that are scaring many investors. When you impose tariffs to protect our steel and aluminum industries, you risk the ire of anyone who consumes those metals. Not to mention everyone who's afraid that the Chinese will do something to retaliate. Even as I think these tariffs are sorely needed to show the Chinese we are through with their targeting our companies, our workers, to create their jobs, their companies. But just when you think President Trump is all in when it comes to tariffs, he appoints Uber Free Trader and my former co-host, former senior commentator for CBC, Larry Kudlow as his chief economic advisor. Before the appointment, many tech stocks were getting hit out of fear that China might retaliate. Since the appointment, the same stocks have been rallying as Larry's change of address to the West Wing sends a signal to the Chinese that someone in this administration will be talking of the benefits of free trade to the president of the United States. Same thing goes for the big multinationals that do business all over the world. Larry may be speaking a tougher line on China, but there seems to be no new tone for free trade with the rest of the world. That's brought new life to the major industrials. Think 3M. Think Honeywell. No, I don't want to get too cozy. Larry Kudlow knows that he serves at the behest of the president. So if the president says something nasty about China, don't expect Larry to contradict him in public or in private, as his predecessor Gary Cohn certainly did. Anyone who used to watch Kudlow and Kramer knows that I disagree with Larry on a ton of issues. But this pick was about as pro-stock market as you can get. Larry's always pushed for lower capital gains, a lower dividends, a debatable use of taxpayer funds is nevertheless great for the stock market, and he's always been as pro-growth as it gets. So if the president says something to send the market lower, I think you can actually expect Larry to come on air and soothe our animal spirits. Well, that's welcome. Still, the current administration and the current situation is a far cry from where we were two months ago, when Wall Street loved everything the Trump administration was doing, at least on economic policy. We're no longer in that old market where everything from the White House seemed designed to send stocks higher. That's not the case anymore, even if they now have someone who can walk back the president's more controversial tweets. And it's not just the White House that's sending mixed messages. It's all the wings of government. Republicans led an actual bipartisan rollback of some of the more serious and onerous provisions of Dodd-Frank just today. That could be a big win for the banks and their stocks got a little lift. However, what matters far more for the banks is the way the regulators treat them. And at least within this administration, the regulators are about as friendly as it gets. There have been so few cases brought by any agency against any bank that I keep expecting to hear about big layoffs in the compliance and legal departments of these institutions. Dead wood. No new agency regulations or prosecutions gives the banks a lot more latitude to lend, too. I think the bank stocks, therefore, are among 
the cheapest group in the market. And every time they come down, you got to tell yourself that the light touch of these new regulators will mean higher earnings down the road for certain. But then, out of nowhere, consider the blasting that the oil and gas master limited partnerships got today when the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission disallowed, yes, disallowed a favorable tax allowance that had been a gift to the group. When I saw the ruling, I couldn't believe it. This decision sent the pipeline business back far more than any of the environmental rules that President Obama ever championed. It was a total shocker. Who would have thought that this administration's FERC would do more to starve pipeline growth than the Democrats could with all of their rhetoric and lawsuits blocking more pipes from being built all over this country? Maybe they're taking a principled stand against corporate welfare. But to me, the policy just seemed confused and certainly more onerous than anything from Obama. What can I say, though? The fickle nature of this government is a wild card. I guess we just got to get used to it. Oh, and let, why don't we do this? Let's throw in the big daddy of fickle takeovers. In 2017, they were given and they always worked. You had them all over the place. In 2018, we're at the mercy of Mercurial president. Next week should be the beginning of the government's case against the ATT Time Warner deal. Case that probably never would have been bought by the previous administration. And I can't blame the more cynical only among you for wondering if Trump just wants to punish Time Warner CNN. Then there's the unbelievably heavy handed way the government stopped Broadcom's attempt to take over Qualcomm. I am still reeling from what happened there when the president himself weighed in to make Broadcom sound like, to me, some sort of Chinese fifth column set to give away Qualcomm's 5G wireless trade secrets if the deal was consummated. It was extraordinary. And once again, I sincerely doubt this deal would have received the same scrutiny would have seen the same scrutiny under the previous administration. It's impossible to believe that President Obama would have ever gone to the lengths of issuing an executive order to stop a single deal. Now let's say you step back and look at the landscape. What do you see? I think you see radical inconsistencies that simply didn't exist in the Halcyon days of 2017, where there were free passes all over the place. Think about those wonderful days. You get a presidential tweet to criticize the business for doing something wrong, and a few days later, there'd be a capitulation of some sorts, and then the stock in question would be off to the races. Those were super reasons to buy. I used to joke that the president was raising numbers and slapping on strong buys, something that culminated in the biggest estimate raiser perhaps of all time. The gigantic tax cuts for corporations, coupled with the tax holiday and the repatriation of foreign assets. Glory be! Pound the table! Super de duper! White House approved strong buys! Now, though, now, though, we could be cutting numbers of the industrials off of raised prices for aluminum and steel. We could be slashing estimates across the board for companies that do business with China. We may even be cutting numbers for companies with overseas earnings. Because one thing that's been left out of the dialogue about Larry Kudlow's appointment is that he favors a strong dollar, which is a real estimate cutter for the internationals. At the same time, anyone in the pipeline business just got numbers slashed galore. And takeovers, I think the landscape's changed and it's changed dramatically and not for the better. Now, don't get me. I'm not telling you to get down the market. No, don't get down The fundamentals are still incredibly strong, thanks to a fabulous worldwide economic expansion. But looking to Washington for help? That's so 2017. The bottom line is that this year we have a very different narrative, and it's a lot less favorable to higher stock prices. I still like the market. But last year's investing was downright easy. And because of difficult combination of higher interest rates, let's not forget those, and an inconsistent Washington, let's put quotes around that word, it's 
not going to be so easy anymore. Let's take some questions. Let's go to Joe in New York. Joe. Kramer, booyah. Booyah, my friend. What's happening? Uh, I bought big into Nutanix last month, uh, 31. They just blew away earnings a couple of weeks ago. The stock's taken off. Uh, it looks like the cloud computing sector is losing a little steam. Should I tighten my trailing stop loss or just take profits? Well, I, I would disagree with that. I agree with everything you said about Nutanix, Joe. And how about this? At the beginning of our next year and of, uh, 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 of our existence, the, the, the Callers are smarter than ever. Nutanix is a great stock. I don't think the cloud is cooling, but you just had a major home run. How about taking off a quarter? 25% just for me. Go out and buy yourself a nice cashmere sweater. Let's go to Hayes in Texas. Hayes. Jim, skiing in Beaver Creek, Colorado. Booyahs to my niece and nephew, Tori and Jade. Well, I love them. Hey, great shout out. Fabulous. Jim, through my own analysis, I've calculated a fair price for Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs stock is $250 a share. In the recent past, it has tickled its resistance at 275 and failed each time immediately. Yesterday, I heard pundits calling for $300 a share for Goldman because of the CEO chain. Huge change. Here, someone else might say they know nothing. When you are convicted on the price of a stock and you feel that there's a premium written into its current price, what would be the best strategy? And could you have okay. the Sebadachi queen look at a chart at Goldman Sachs? Okay, Thanks. I'm going to give you this trade. Look, I worked at Goldman Sachs about today. This stock sells at uh, 12 times next year's earnings. We've got the most volatile stock market I have seen in, in ages. Who does best of all the banks in the world in volatility? It's Goldman Sachs. The number's too low. I'm raising numbers, Goldman Sachs. I'm slapping a 15 multiple on it. And I'm going to take that baby all the way up to the high, to, well, let's say mid-300s. I don't think it's... It's way too cheap. All right, it's a whole different market. The landscape is a tough one, but not an impossible one. We are in this together, and we're going to get through it even with this newfound thicket. Oh, man, money tonight. Say goodbye to the synthetic smell of brand-new Barbies and action figures at Toys R Us because it's going to be closing its doors. I'll tell you why its obituary was actually written a couple decades ago. Then, with news that Broadcom Qualcomm SAG has come to an end, what does the CEO of Intel make of the news? I've got it. And it's the single biggest beneficiary from the resurgent PC market, and the CEO is coming on Mad Money. Do not miss my exclusive with HP. Oh, man, you got to stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Did Toys R Us have to liquidate? Was it inevitable that the company had to go broke? Sadly, yes. In the end, this chain had no reason for being. Toys R Us offered nothing special, not the lowest price, not the best selection, not the best service, not the best locations, just nothing. Today, many people who grew up with the store are mourning its liquidation. I get it. Toys R Us is technically older than I am. It's an institution. We bought a ton of toys for my kids there, diapers even. Not that we ever liked going there, though. It just became, for many, the only game in town. 
But if you're going to mourn his passing, you should have started your lamentation 20 years ago. Yes, it's been that bad for that long. It was already awful when the company went private 12 years ago and loaded up the balance sheet with more than $7.5 billion in debt. That was indeed the death sentence. Now, I've heard a lot in the last 24 hours about how Toys R Us could have survived if only Bain Capital, KKR, and Vernado hadn't taken on so much debt for the leverage buyout in 2005. Ah, I can get that logic. At the same time, the Toys R Us, uh, as we all call it, toys on the trading desk, went private. So did Dollar General and Burlington Coat Factory. Those two retailers used their private time to fix up their stores, become much more focused. They then became public again, and they made your fortunes. Dollar General stock gone from 22 in 2009 to 93 now. Burlington's been even more spectacular, going from 24 to two in 2013 to 128 as of today. Amazing. But I think the toys was doomed at the turn of the century. Something you could see at the time in its stagnant sales and not-so-hot stock prices. And by the way, let's throw in shabby stores. That's when Walmart and Target decided to own the physical store business, while Amazon started taking share online, even if they were actually partnered with Toys R Us at the time. Both Walmart and Target decided to undercut Toys R Us on price with all the hottest toys. Amazon took the knowledge it needed from this company and started offering toys itself at much lower prices than any brick-and-mortar retailer could compete with. And all of that was before the private equity firms thought they were so smart to be able to think they could turn around toys. Wow. But let's step back in the time and let's consider the history here. At one point in the 1980s, Toys R Us was one of the greatest growth stories of the year. It was what we called the category killer, cleaning up against what were basically tens of thousands of mom and pop toy stores all over the country. Toys was one of my greatest longs during that period because my father sold boxes, printed bags, scotch tape, and gift wrap to most of those mom and pop stores in the Philadelphia area. Pop would tell me about each of his toy store clients going bankrupt, and I'd tell my clients to buy the heck out of Toys R Us and keep buying until every last one of those family stores got wiped out. While those mom and pop stores were struggling, the toy company started merging to the point where the whole universe became condensed into Mattel and Hasbro and a handful of also rants. Toys R Us could get better prices from them because of its scale, sealing the fate of being the best of even the best-run family businesses. I remember one of these clients telling my dad that he could buy Mattel toys at a Toys R Us cheaper than it cost him to buy the toys directly from Mattel. They were unstoppable. But almost like clockwork, once these mom-and-pop competitors failed, Walmart and Target decided to do the same thing to Toys R Us, offering the latest and greatest toys at prices that company couldn't beat. You quickly started seeing the telltale decline in same-store sales that amounts to the death rattle for a retailer. Essentially, Toys R Us was done when it had a 2% decline in same-store sales in the 1999 Christmas season. It was shocking. I remember it. What's the most amazing thing about this chain? The fact that it lasted as long as it did. Toys R Us could not compete in any category, any category that mattered. Not price, not location, not speed, not brands, and certainly not service. Sure, it could have hung on longer if it had less debt. But in the end, like so many other category killers, it only got killed in turn by smarter, better operators. Of course, the great irony is that Walmart, Target, and Amazon all came together to murder Toys R Us. But if you're at Walmart or Target right now, and you're reading the toys obituary, you have to wonder, hmm, one day, could you be next? Let's take some calls. Let's go to Joe in Florida. Joe. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Thank you for taking my call. Thank my you, Joe, for calling. My about Activision Blizzard. With the addition of three new members to the leadership team, how do you think they stand going forward in the esports industry in comparison to their peers? Do you All take right, there's three, there's three in the industry. There's, 
And okay, there's three in the industry. Okay, there's Take Two, there's Activision, and there's uh, EA. And I have to tell you, at any given time, one is the leader of Machabal Trust. We're telling club members, do not panic over the four-point decline in Activision Blizzard. It was at one point, not that long ago, the single best one in the group. So my answer is, I would be rather be a, a buyer than a seller. Let's go to Nasid in Texas. Nasid. How are you doing, Jim? Big fan I of you. I am good. Um, How about you, sir? Doing well, doing well. Want to give a quick shout out to the TCU Frogs and Jamie Dixon. Today, I want to talk about GE. Uh, bought it in December for seventeen sixty four. My question to you is, should I hang on for the long run? Do you believe in the CEO or should I cut my losses once it hits 15 again? You know what? I believe John Flannery's doing the best job he can with one of the worst hands I've ever seen. My Chapel Trust decided to get out and take the loss. If they come, if the stock comes back down and they do a big equity offering or they own up, I think, frankly, to some of the longer term problems they have, like long term care, which I don't think they have under control yet. Maybe. But there's so many other better stocks to buy. What is the single most underappreciated stock in all of technology, not just semiconductors? There's no question. It's Intel. Said it earlier this week, saying it now. If you know how I keep talking about the stunning resurgence of the personal computer, guess who benefits from that? You have the company that makes the best processors in the world. They've also got amazing exposure to the hottest area in business, the data center, and to one that I know you're all interested in, autonomous driving. Two fabulous, fast-growing end markets. Intel has a great story. And while the stock has run up substantially from $33 last summer to about $51 today, it remains incredibly cheap. Don't take it from me, though. Let's check in with Brian Krasanich, the terrific CEO of Intel, get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Krasanich, welcome back to Man Money. Thanks. Good to be here. Good to see you. Okay. A piece of research comes out this week. I never thought I'd see this. It's from, it's from Citi. And it says, sentiment, Intel most hated. How is that possible after these quarters and the numbers you're putting up? You know, I think it takes time. To, when you're talking about a company that's known for one product, one strategy, and you're talking about then shifting it, it takes time for people to believe your strategy. And as we've moved to a much broader data-centric strategy, it's, I think Wall Street's just now starting to believe and understand just what that means. And you see it in our stock price, right? You see right. people believing it now. But we were talking to HP today. I mean, it's not like the uh, personal computer, the workstation, the notebook's doing badly. They're, some of them are growing double digits. Data center fastest growing business that I know. I mean, you're playing in every fast end, and you're a dominant player in every fast. Yeah, the PC is still a great business, right? right. And, uh, you know, we continue to be excited. And like you said, I saw Dion earlier. Right. HP is a great example of innovation going on there. But if you look at our data-centric areas, the, the data center, the, the FPGAs with our Altera acquisition, uh, IoT, those businesses are growing double digits, and they are making up now f- over uh, close to 50% of our revenue. And more than 50% earnings? of our 14 profit. 14 times earnings? That yeah. doesn't make sense to me. Well, but it's, so people will believe that as they okay. start to see it quarter after quarter. It's about delivering results quarter after quarter. All right, so uh, because you are so uh, embedded in and taking off in 5G, immediately people say, well, listen, Broadcom, Qualcomm, Intel's got to move in. I, I, I'm out here enough to know that, that some things can just be chatter. But people said you hired a banker and you wanted Broadcom because you were big in 5G, but you want to be biggest. Yes or no? You know, I, I can't speak about rumors, but I can tell you we, we've made two big acquisitions, biggest acquisitions in Intel's history with Altera and, and Mobileye. We're heads down on making those successful and right, and there are growth engines for the future. 
Uh, and, and uh, you know, 5G is important, but we think we already have the end-to-end -end product from the data center, which is important in 5G, all the way out to the modem. We have those products uh, already. All right. Well, you know I question you on Mobileye. I spent a lot of money uh, buying it, $15 billion, only about 500 employees. Let me bounce the theory off of where I may have been wrong. I didn't realize you don't want to be in just parts. You want to be with the OEM, the original equipment manufacturer, and that's who Mobileye's contracts were. If you're with them, a lot of things go a lot easier. You, you, you got most of it. The other thing, you're right, it's, it's not just about selling parts. It's about selling a platform. Right. So you're right, it was a small number of employees, but some of the smartest employees on the planet, we believed, around building the algorithms and the models for how you drive and building a model and a methodology for building crowdsourced maps. Okay. And those maps are critical for driving an autonomous vehicle. Okay, uh, I know you as an engineer know as a straight shooter. You, you've been, you know, there's things that have happened this year. We're just going to clear them up right now, okay. okay? Because you're here and you're straight. So we're just going to clear them up. First of all, the security flaws, they are of a concern to people. The security flaws in the chips, they talk to, people talk to me about these when I've been out here. And I, I want to believe that it's behind you and you take security first. But I'm hearing too many people are saying, tell Brian, this is really worrisome. It's worrying the data centers, worrisome for what the bad guys can do. Can you alleviate the fears or is it just the new nature of things? Well, so, so we uh, did do our security first pledge. And so we are saying, you know, very clearly that we do now and we have in the past put security as our primary concern. We announced today that all of the CPUs five years or younger, so newer, uh, have mitigations now in software. And we're starting to produce in the second half of this year where we put those mitigations against those exploits in the actual silicon itself. So, so those, we believe, were getting behind us. But, but security is an ongoing thing. Right. It's like, uh, I always remind people, it's kind of like your house, right? As long as you have a door or a window to get in, somebody's going to try and bust it open. And so, key, keep your house, keep your computer patched, keep your system up to date, uh, because we're constantly making improvements. Did, were the companies who held back, customers who held back, wait, waiting for this day that it's 100%? You know, there's no indication because we, we committed to get those software patches out to them and have them in the, in, in the latest uh, yeah. uh, CPUs as well. Okay. Now, Wall Street Journal does a story which says Intel CEO stock sale called unusual by private security specialists. I'm just quoting them. They're saying you had a, a, that you sold a lot of stock. It was a prearranged sale. But can we put to rest the idea that this was some sort of uh, something that, that was nefarious? The government, that I can tell, did not open an investigation. This happened. You sold stock. Mistake because of where the stock price went. But I want very much to say, you know what? This is no news. Can I say? It? Yeah, it, completely unrelated. This was about me just simply doing a diversification. You know, Intel has a very complete process that I go through any time right. I want to sell that ensures I have no insider information. And then, as you said, we put it on a 10B51 plan, and, and you know, I have lose control of it after that. Right. Now, people have to understand that because I've done many of these myself. It's prearranged, meaning you don't know what's going to happen at your company. Yeah, up now, or down. But let me ask you something. I come here and tell you I think the stock's the cheapest I've seen it. Now, I'd be a buyer, not a seller. Even for diversification, why sell? I mean, particularly because, well, look what's happened. Well, it's still my, my biggest single holding. So okay. it's still my biggest single uh, investment I have. And I'm, I'm more excited about the future 
than than you. And I, it, you know, I listened to Pete uh, earlier this morning and uh, or yesterday, excuse me. And I think right. the only thing he got wrong is it's got more room than even when he said so. Well, no, he he has been uh, he's been adamant, and that's right. Are you worried about China retaliation? Now we see this Broadcom deal. We know that the president killed this deal. Cynthia's killed the deal because they're worried that almost that Broadcom was a, I, I, I wouldn't use the term fifth column, that they genuinely believed that they were going to give 5G secrets of Qualcomm to China. Does this not hurt you in some way? Well, I, I do think we have to be careful about making sure that, you know, I believe in fair trade and we need to make sure it's fair trade. But, but a trade war and a trade, you know, uh, uh, complication doesn't help any of uh, our business or many businesses in this industry. So, the balance between those two is what we need to really strive. You uh, committed $7 billion investment in America, probably one of the largest. Uh, the president, as far as I'm concerned, clearly uh, knows Intel is a good actor. Does it help to call him and say him what you just said to me just now? Yeah, it does. I mean, we were there. We talked to him about our investment in Arizona factory. That's continuing to build out. You, you know what I think it, we're proudest is seven, more than 70% of what we build is built inside the U.S., more than 70% of what we sell goes in ships outside of the U.S. That's a highly we, unusual ratio. Right, and we, we believe we're one of the great American manufacturers. We covered data center. We, we covered uh, the PC, covered 5G. Uh, drones are not a, uh, let's just say they're not a gimmick. And you're a leader. What does it mean to be a leader? You know, this is another discussion about data. You know, I, I've talked about that data is the new oil. It, it is going to drive economies and drive businesses in the future. Drones collect or use massive amounts of data. Right. The drone shows we put on, you know, it's one PC driving 1,200 drones, all perfectly choreographed. Data, data, data. Data, data, data. Now, and when you do your uh, sponsorship for the Olympics, do you get the point across that it's, it's not just, you know, the Blue Man app was so powerful that it did make us think, you know what, Intel inside. Do we, are we learning from things like the Olympics that Intel is inside a lot more than just this? It is. It, it, it's, you're, you're seeing that not only is Intel inside a lot of other things, and people start to ask that question, well, if they're in that, what else could they be in? But they also see us as cool. We're a cool company when you, when you do these kinds of programs. Well, I would not have described the old Intel as cool, and it's okay to be cool. It is. It's okay. Well, that's Brian Crusader. She's the CEO of Intel Corporation. Once again, I reiterate, the stock is the most inexpensive stock, not in the semiconductor sector, but in all of technology. Here in San Francisco, we need to get our heads around the personal computer renaissance that suddenly thrown the hardware-oriented tech stocks into the spotlight. This whole narrative came into focus three weeks ago when HP Inc., the computer and printer segment of the old Hewlett-Packard, shot the lights out with its latest quarter. Not that long ago, everybody assumed that HP Inc. was a sleepy old business that would soon go the way of the dodo as smartphones and tablets replace PCs. Naturally, turns out it couldn't be further from the truth, as the business is on fire and the stock's been roaring. Get this, it's up more than 40% last year. It's up another 12% since the beginning of 2018. Earlier today, we spoke with Dion Weisler. He's the president and CEO of HP Inc. at their glorious headquarters. Take a look. Dude, I thought I'd never say this, but you have made the PC Fun. Not fun again, but fun. Is that one of the reasons why the business has been so strong? 
Jim, firstly, welcome to our humble home. It's great to have you here. And I'm thrilled with the business. And the last quarter was an incredible quarter, 14% growth, not just in PCs, but also in print, 14% growth in print, 15% growth in PCs. Fifth consecutive quarter of double-digit growth, which means we have what I call the double-double. And it's really off the back of incredible innovation, hyper-segmentation, cost control, and just making the PC cool. This is a growth story, and it's a growth story with a larger market than anyone thinks. Yeah, well, indeed, I've said for a long time, this is a $350 billion market. And, you know, four out of five machines don't have an HP logo on it, which is a real opportunity for potential customers to experience what our incredible engineers uh, are putting together. First time we got together in New York, you gave me what I thought was just a song and dance about 3D printing. Because I only knew 3D printing as the, the consumer, uh, which I thought was kind of, oh, that peaked already. The commercial market's gigantic and working for you now. Yeah, well, the 3D printing market isn't gigantic yet. It's still a relatively small business relative to that $350 billion PC market. It's only a $5 billion market. The potential is to tap into the $12 trillion manufacturing industry because it is a much better mousetrap. Lower inventory, just in time, manufacturing democratised, less shipping all around the world, so for all, you know, less cost of capital tied up. For all sorts of reasons, 3D printing is just a question of when, not if. And anyone even near you right now? Sorry? Anyone near you competitively? I haven't seen I, Look, I think the team, what the team did is we leveraged 30 years of intellectual property from our core printing business and we developed a very unique, uh, highly patented technology that really enables us to print 10 times faster at a fraction of the cost of everybody else. And rather than most people are focusing on prototyping, we're doing real manufacturing. Okay, now I want to talk about something. I, look, I didn't like my PC. I like my cell phone. Okay, well, the cell phone was fun. I now play with my PC. I now scroll with my PC. It is almost a given that if I can't scroll with a PC, I have no interest in being with them. How did you know that these things were fun? How did you know that touch would matter? How did you know that graphics would matter? How would you know that sound would matter and could differentiate this? Well, as it turns out, customer insights are really important. And getting into the psyche of how people really want to operate, we live in a three-dimensional world, we're tactile in nature, so being able to interact with your devices and making them highly personalised is really important not just in our PC business, but also in our, our printing business. Look at what's behind us all here. This is all about personalization. Right. How can you make personalized products pop on the shelf for huge brands around the world? And it's working, right? I mean, look, I'm looking at Coca-Cola, I'm looking at Smirnoff, a magazine that has my name on it? Not just your name, every single subscriber gets their own personalized copy. That's the power of digital printing. And you can make these products come to life on a shelf and separate yourself from all your competitors. That's the power of digitalization right, and printing. Okay, well, let's talk numbers. Average selling price actually going up for PCs. Uh, some raw cost problems. You did reveal in the last quarter, your unbelievably great CFO talked about the idea. Kathy said that, yes, DRAM prices are still going higher, but the dollar could offset that. Talking about the raw costs, talking about whether they're still going up, whether they're leveling off, and whether average selling prices can still go higher. Yeah, I'd say DRAM will continue to be tight throughout the year. The whole year. Uh, yeah, I, I expect it will be tight flash. through the whole year. You know, well, I think Flash probably has more of an opportunity to level out, but DRAM is, is going to be higher. And I said that a couple of years ago. It takes 
several years. There's enormous capital that goes into producing DRAM and it takes time to, for that to play out in the marketplace. But there's a very large basket of costs that go into a PC. Some are higher, some are lower. We do think there is a cost headwind. Some of it is offset by currency. So I think ASPs will continue to trend up a little bit. We offset that by you know, making sure we're in great cost position elsewhere in the business and continuing to innovate with sprinkles of magic that customers really value. And I've uh, slighted printers. Just tell, tell us about that market, which everyone thought was totally dead. Yeah, well, the printing business is, is still an incredible... The personal and, printer, the commercial... Incredible, yeah. At the Bo- office. Both at home and at the office. In the office, it's a $110 billion market, and we were only playing in $55 billion of it, only half of it. The printer that we see behind us here is why we did the Samsung acquisition, because it opens up the other $55 billion copier market to us. We have very low market share in that market segment, but we're growing there. And so it gives us a growth platform for many years to come. I know you are conscious of the legacy of this great company. And it was a uh, legacy of innovation, uh, but it was kind of got, uh, let's just say, I don't want to say it ever went downhill because the company's always been great. But as one big company, a lot of divisions got lost, including maybe the most important one, which is yours. Talk about just the, uh, let, what, what the whole history is, the arc of where we are versus where you were. Yeah, I would say at the the core of this company is innovation. Bill and Dave started in a garage and they were engineers and they made the first audio oscillator. And since that time, innovation has been really stitched into the fabric of the organisation. Now, as over time, as the company got bigger and bigger, it became really hard to focus on your market segments. And that was the whole thesis of the separation. I think it's unlocked tremendous value uh, for our shareholders. More importantly, it's unlocked tremendous value for our customers because we're able to make much better products We're focusing on the customer segments. We're doing a lot of customer insight in all of the businesses that were HP Co, you know, two and a half years ago. And innovation, we thought, was the province of the cell phone. It seems to me maybe the cell phone's not making the changes that the PC is. Well, you know, for years, um, cell phones were growing at an exponential rate. And at some point... If you don't provide innovation to your customers, uh, that slows down. I think we're seeing that in the market. We're certainly seeing it with tablet devices. We're seeing it with, with mobile phones. Yet for years, people were walking around with great big thick laptops and, and old PCs, and, and they were heavy. And now we're, you know, we're launching these incredible devices that I have to show you open, because if I shut them, you almost can't see them anymore. They're so thin, and they have beautiful design. And we're giving customers, through innovation, a reason to purchase, to be able to touch, to be able to listen, to be able to interact with a device that's beautifully customised uh, for for each of the market segments that we go after. One last question. After every one of these quarters, double-double, people say, well, that's about all they can really do. Uh, where are we, in your opinion, in terms of the evolution? Well, you have to think about the strategy that we have. We have our core businesses of print and PC. We still think they're great businesses. We talked about the size of those markets. Through innovation, we can continue to take market share. That gives us capacity through the great cash generation that we, that we earn out of that to invest in our future in these graphics businesses, in everything as a service, moving PCs to a service, printing as a service, and then further out into the future, 3D printing. So I think our best years lie ahead of us. All right, that's what I, I totally agree with you. That's Dan Weiser, President and CEO of HP. What an exciting story.
It is time. It's time for the Lightroom Quiz. I'm Rob Parkles. I'm going to say I'm stuck to Play the sound. And then the lightning runs over. Are you ready, Ski? That's time for the Lightroom Quiz by David Cowboy. Dave. Hey, booyah, Jim. Booyah. Hi, I'd like to get your opinion on the Radian Group, RTN. No, housing market's slowing, and I want to be there. Sean in Virginia, Sean. Kramer, I Yo. jumped on Chegg two years ago when you first called it at three and change. Is it time to take a profit? Or I think I you can ching, can ching half of it. Let the rest run. Come on, man. Let's not be pigs. How about Charles in California? Charles. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Yeah. Read your book. Give it carefully. Thank you, man. I think we had some good ideas, and that's still working. How do I help? Yeah, my stock is TX Terranium. What are you doing, Tia? Will you step up to new core pre-announcement? It's not even up, for heaven's sake. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. volatile market has been very rough for the consumer packaged goods stocks. And on some level, it makes sense. When people start worrying about higher interest rates and inflation, they don't want to own these slow and steady high yielders. But I got to wonder, perhaps the group has come down way too far and way too fast. Take Clorox, the maker of Gladbacks, Kingsford Charcoal, Hidden Valley Salad Dressing, Fresh Step Candy Litter, Birch Bees Personal Care, some new natural organic supplements, and plain old Clorox bleach, along with many other products. It gets the vast bulk of its sales from the U.S. It's a great tax-paying situation. Clorox reported a somewhat disappointing quarter in early February. Stock lost $10 of its value, single day, now down 23 bucks and change from its highs. Come on, we got to ask it hasn't gotten too cheap if you think longer term. Earlier today, we spoke to the brilliant Ben O'Dory. He's the Chairman and CEO of Clorox, get a better sense of his company's prospects. Take a look. This is both an exciting time and a challenging time for the space that you're in. You have to skate, as we've been saying, you know, where the puck is going. So you've been making some great acquisitions. But at the same time, people are worried that consumer packaged goods is a slowing category. Can you talk to me about your new acquisition and how it can jumpstart what is, you know, is my favorite division? Yeah, we just announced this week that we've made an acquisition of a company called Nutranext. Uh, it's a business with a lot of leading brands in the fast-growing, very large and very profitable vitamins, minerals, and supplement space. Two-thirds of the U.S. population use supplements. A lot of consumers, as we age, but also millennials, are looking for a healthier lifestyle. And vitamins, minerals, and supplements play an important role. And in the future for us will form a very important and long-term growth one way. Okay, so what we've got here, just to go over rainbow light, it's mm-hmm. a multivitamins. We've got natural vitalities, but uh, this is for stress. Yep. Uh, my wife asked me, said, ask him about the stress product. What, what, is that, what can work against stress, honestly? Yeah, so all number uh, one and number two brands, which we like in attractive niches, uh, stress is a big factor. Yeah. Um, A lot of people can't sleep uh, well because they suffer from stress, and stress is often correlated with a lack of magnesium in your body. More than 50% of consumers don't have enough magnesium. What this does is it brings magnesium back and addresses that deficiency. And what people tell us 
is that it makes them relax, it makes them sleep better, and it addresses that stress. So this is a product that I've been using personally right. for, for many months. I know you did. And it's like made these. a big difference in my life, and as has life, right? probiotics. I see these in club, I see big stores. I still don't see them in my drugstores. I mean, um, the ones in New York City, is that just because it's aberrant, or are we going to start seeing them everywhere? We are building distribution thoughtfully okay. and with discipline, and over time, we've gotten into club stores recently, right. and that's doing well. And our priority has been to get into e-commerce. E-commerce is growing leaps and bounds right. this fiscal year. That's where a lot of consumers buy probiotics like Renew Life. And that's uh, uh, been a big focus area for us. We're also innovating on this business now for the first time. So this year, we're turning on the innovation machine. We have the first non-GMO-based Renew Life uh, probiotic coming out. And we have a dedicated new line for kids all development stages because a lot of moms like to give their kids probiotics to aid with their health and wellness and their digestion. So okay. this is a great uh, growth platform for us. We expect it to grow double digits this fiscal year, and there's a lot of growth still to be had on Renew Life for us. Now, I think you've got this tremendous natural and organic line. We've got the fabulous Burt Bees product, which you know I'm most favorite about this. But we also are going to talk about this. This is the hottest at number one, Hidden Valley Ranch. I love it because it tastes great, but it's got a lot of chemicals in it. So how do we reconcile natural organic under the same roof as a very successful product that does have a lot of chemicals in it? So as a company, I will tell you first that we stand by all the ingredients in all of our products. So this is a product that's fundamentally good for you. It's also particularly good for you because what we've been able to prove is that when moms give their kids Hidden Valley Ranch, the kids eat more fruits and vegetables, which is why we market Hidden Valley Ranch as a vehicle for moms to eat, to give their kids what they normally don't like to eat. I have kids that are 12 and 9 and, you know, fruits and vegetables, not their favorites, but they do eat it with Hidden Valley Ranch. And that's a big secret behind the success, long-term success right. of, uh, of uh, Hidden Valley. And that's also why, fun fact, uh, the ranch category is now bigger in the United States than ketchup. Well, that's that's pretty amazing because it did not was not bigger when you got this. I know that. No, we got it uh, when it was very small, right. and we built it thoughtfully and with discipline over the years. And we're following that same recipe on uh, Burt's Bees, on Renew Life, on these brands. We're brand builders at heart, and we build our business with a very strong, long-term, strategic mindset, and we're doing that well. Okay, now, the last quarter was noisy. There were some uh, cat litter, not what I thought it would be. Uh, there was freight costs that were a little bit higher, resin that were a little higher. They all did seem to be kind of coalescing as one-time situations that wouldn't at all derail you from your 2020 growth plan, right? No, not at all. We have confidence in our strategy, and we're on track to deliver another solid uh, fiscal year for our shareholders. Sales-wise, we're very much on track. Short-term, we are dealing with um, uh, increases in costs from commodities and from transportation, like everybody in our industry. But uh, we're turning our cost savings machine back on. We are uh, a very successful company with a long-standing track record of cost savings. We are leaning into innovation, which all happens to be margin accretive to our company. We're one of the very few companies in our space that has innovation, so that's a plus for us. And we've also said that we're assessing pricing. We do think we have pricing power in this market because we have leading brands in innovation. And if cost justified, we'll certainly be able to uh, uh, make that part of the mix again for us. Okay, one last question. 
question. Will the Nutrinex acquisition preclude you necessarily from taking advantage of the things that the new tax code gave you to perhaps boost a dividend if the board thinks it's great, or even a special dividend if the board thinks it's great? Or did you spend so much that it's just going to be steady as she goes? So we didn't do Nutrinex because of tax reform. This made sense uh, as a disciplined step uh, in our 2020 okay. strategy. What we are doing, of course, U.S. tax reform is a big benefit uh, for Clorox shareholders, is uh, use tax reform to invest in our business, whether that's organically or inorganically, and we can do more. Mm -hmm. And then whatever we don't need uh, to make investments, we will put back into the hands of shareholders. So we have last month increased our dividend by 14 percent, and we continue to look uh, with our board at opportunities to make tax reform uh, uh, a benefit for Clorox shareholders, which it is, and we'd like to put it to work. Well, I think you're growing all the appropriate ways, and there are other companies in your industry that have faltered, and you're still innovating and growing. That's Ben O'Dor, Chairman and CEO of Clorox. This stock has not been this cheap in many a year, and it's got a very good yield. Stay with me. I thought Intel's Brian Krasanich told a pretty good story today of a stock that sells at 14 times earnings. It's one of the greatest companies that has ever, ever been created. Yes, there's some issues, but there's issues with all stocks. Like I said, there's always more because summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.